What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence, and I am stoked to bring you this podcast on leadership and emergencies, the art and science of resuscitation. I've been looking forward to this one for a really long time. I want to give a quick shout out before we get going to some CRNAs around the country who've been making huge impacts through organizing conferences that I've been able to be a part of recently. So Jamie Reuter, top of the list with Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences. She's been killing it the last few years, organizing conferences at amazing destinations around the nation. We were supposed to be down in my old stomping grounds of Asheville, North Carolina a few weeks ago, but Jamie shifted her four-day conference to a virtual platform due to the pandemic, and we still had a blast. I also want to give a shout out to Matt Zender down in Maryland. He helped pull me into his state association's fall conference that ran a couple weekends ago. And then we also recorded a conversation on his podcast, which is called Going Viral. I'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. It's actually the first time that I've ever been a guest on someone else's podcast. And we had a ton of fun talking about precepting, clinical education, wellness, COVID-19, Joe Rogan, secret stuff, and so much more. So if you want to check that out, it's episode 24 of Going Viral by Matt Zender. And again, I'll put a link in the show notes. I want to give a huge thanks to Brooke Kruckenberg, a CRNA with Iowa State Association, who just put on and wrapped up a fantastic three-day conference this last weekend with a whole slate of presenters and topics that pretty much summed up the cutting edge of anesthesia. Uh, So you were were definitely lucky to be part of that conference if you were able to make Iowa State Association this fall. So Brooke and her team uh, with IANA were all over this conference. They even had an app for the conference so that attendees could follow the schedule live from their phones. They could get show notes to the talks and join in live chat groups throughout the weekend. It was a ton of fun, and I definitely hope that they invite me back uh, to speak in the future. So if someone in Iowa uh, gets this podcast, be sure to share it with Brooke. <laughs> and then this next weekend, I'm stoked about Andrea Farrar, who's organizing Maine's State Association meeting for 2020 that I'll also be presenting at. I'm super stoked uh, to join my home association here in Maine. So thank you to each of you for the opportunity to hang out with your teams, your state associations, and your networks. It's so much fun to see the energy and the passion that CRNAs have for the work that we do around the United States. And as I've been saying this fall, kind of in light of our current political environment at the federal level in the states, uh, in, in the United States, obviously, we are, we are exactly where we should be due to either our action or our inaction as individuals. Now, I'm not going to get into governmental politics with you. That is not what this podcast is about. But I will say, because this, this is a, a principle that, that kind of crosses the board in terms of domains, I will say that if you are dissatisfied with what's going on, if you want to see change, if you want to see progress or evolution or a shift in the way that we interact, the way that we do things, then we would do well to remember that as us who the burden of change is on because we're exactly where we should be either due to our inaction or our action and that's true for your personal life for your finances for your health for your well-being for your local anesthesia practice all the way up to the federal government 
We all own this. We're all in this together. And we have a profound ability to shape the world around us. And the CRNAs I just mentioned, they have been taking matters into their own hands. They're organizing, they're communicating, they're pulling people together. They're following their passion. They're mastering their craft. They're doing work that is uniquely their own and work that is having a huge ripple effect across our community. And I'm so pumped to be a part of those conferences. So thank you so much. All right. And with that, let's get to the show. So this is a bit of an introduction. It's an overview of concept. It's called Leadership in Emergencies. It's like a trailhead where we'll start from. And then as we stick with the theme of mastering the craft of anesthesia, we're going to come back to this, this concept of leadership in emergencies. We're going to go deeper. We're going to explore some of these concepts up close in later podcasts in the coming weeks and months. So be sure to stay tuned. But this is the introductory episode. So Leadership in emergencies is really about leadership outside of emergencies. It's about what we do in the moment during the crisis, but also what we do when everything is fine and we have time to prepare and train and build systems of care and relationships with the people that we work with. It's about creating systems of care, really of actually refining the systems of care that we find ourselves already in and about the human factors at play within those systems. So we have the opportunity to both help write the play and perform in it. You're like the screenplay writer, you're the director, you're the producer, and you're a lead actor, right? Because you're also a clinician. You can help shape the system and design the system that you work in, and then you show up and you work in that system. So maybe you've seen yourself as a provider in someone else's system, right? You were a resident at a residency, a student rotating through various hospitals and clinical assignments, and then you passed boards. You joined a group. You joined a team that was already in motion, that had a context to it, that had a culture to it, that had a history to it. And it's got, you know, this unique culture and protocols and, and ways of doing things. This anesthesia team works as part of a surgical and a perioperative team, as part of the critical care and the emergency medicine teams. All of these teams work in a system that has a particular functionality to it. And this system functionality is variable in any hospital. It's also dependent upon the conglomeration of people, teams, processes, the physical structure and layout of either the ED, the OR, the ICU, the hospital, uh, what what COVID has done to that layout, what construction has done to that layout, um, policies, protocols, norms, culture. And also this system is shaped by the time of day, that, like the system functionality is shaped by the time of day, the week. Uh, and the year. Is it a Friday night? Is it a Saturday morning at 3 a.m.? Is it July and all the new surgical residents have just hit the OR? So, so there's a lot of factors that shape a team's performance or a team of teams or a system's performance. And you're an individual on a particular team which works with other teams to form this system to take care of patients. The way you act and perform as an individual really matters, but also the way the team or the team of teams or the system acts and performs matters hugely. And each system of care, each hospital or anesthesia or perioperative team 
has a bit of a bell curve to it, as most things or groups or complex systems do. So there's aspects of the system's functionality at one end that are well-refined, which operate with a high degree of precision, reliability, and expertise. And then there's the main part of the bell curve, where in the typical experience, you know, most of the time, things happen with a reasonable degree of safety, quality outcomes, efficiency, and functional team performance. But then there's aspects of the way systems function at the other end of the bell curve where quality sputters, right? Safety runs on a thread and team performance suffers due to either inexperience of clinicians and providers in that team, deviation from best practices, or you know just the stressors that come from a myriad of latent risk factors and other variables that influence the system's functionality. Now, Quality and system performance may not be an actual bell curve with the majority of outcomes assumed to just be average, right? And only the minority being either high quality or the other end poor, but we might also have more room for progress or more room for growth and development and improvement than we'd like to think. Uh, so it's not always this bell curve where the typical performance is just average. You know, we may be skewed towards, I mean, it's anesthesia and surgery, right? We may be skewed towards having better outcomes um, than just like average. Uh, but there is a lot of room, and I'm going to show you a study here that, that shows that there's a lot of room for improvement as anesthesia providers. So I want to tell you about this study that was recently published in the Journal of Anesthesiology in September of 2017. The lead author is Dr. Matt Weinger of the Center for Research and Innovation in System Safety at Vanderbilt. The research was supported with grants from the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and the Foundation for Anesthesia Education and Research. The title of the article is Simulation-Based Assessment of the Management of Critical Events by Board Certified Anesthesiologists. And so what they did was take 263 board-certified physician anesthesiologists and run them through high-fidelity simulated emergencies in four different scenarios. The sim scenarios were local anesthetic systemic toxicity with hemodynamic collapse, malignant hyperthermia in the PACU, hemorrhagic shock from an intraoperative retroperitoneal bleed, and lastly, acute, unstable AFib digressing to ST elevation myocardial infarction. And in each of these scenarios, uh, the time ran for about 20 minutes, and the physician anesthesiologist in the role of the primary anesthesia provider was referred to as being in the hot seat. The person in the hot seat could call for help, and they would get one additional physician anesthesiologist, dubbed the first responder, who up to that point in the scenario had been blinded uh, to the progression of the scenario. So they didn't know what was going on when they got called. Other anesthesiologists who were trained in rating these scenarios, both in the technical and behavioral performance of the providers who were performing in the scenarios, evaluated the participants on numerous critical performance elements and made an overall yes-no determination if the physician anesthesiologist met minimum criteria as, quote, having performed at the level of a board-certified anesthesiologist. Now, they evaluated both technical skills like 
correctly identifying atrial fibrillation or administering a vasopressor for hypotension, as well as non-technical skills, things like communication, vigilance, decision-making, and teamwork. And here's what they found. Participants successfully completed 81% of critical performance elements. That's not horrible, but it's definitely not stellar. You know, that's like a low B average. Uh, if you put 81% on a GPA scale, it'd be like a 2.6. Now, most healthcare providers would want to score higher than that. Uh, the median rating of holistic, technical, and non-technical skills was 5 out of 10. So think bell curve, right? So this is average, like 56 out of 100 would be what that score is. Uh, 25% of participants received low holistic scores, so a rating of three or less on that nine-point scale. The only demographic difference in performance that was statistically significant was that younger physicians performed better than those who were over the age of 40 years old. Only 70% of individuals in the hot seat were rated by their peers as, quote, having performed at the level of board-certified anesthesiologists, meaning a full 30% did not meet the performance level expected of anesthesiologists. Calling for help was associated with improved individual and team performance. In fact, 34% of the time, when the person in the hot seat was struggling, when they were not meeting minimal expected performance metrics, and then they called for help, the resuscitation improved to the point with the additional team member that the team ended up scoring at or above the expected performance level. So 34% of the time, somebody is not meeting that performance metric that's expected of just a you know, baseline performance level for a board-certified anesthesiologist, they call for help, they get another anesthesiologist in the room, and the team performance improves. The authors make some interesting points about their data and their study. They found that their participants, when they looked at the demographics compared to the total population of physician anesthesiologists in the U.S., were more likely to be younger, female, fellowship-trained, and work in an academic setting. And they assumed that these attributes would probably make it more likely for them to do well in a simulated crisis. And that's interesting, right? Given that like other studies cited in their article and in their own literature review, these authors found an alarming rate of performance gaps, including delays in action, omissions, or outright mistakes, which the evaluators thought should have been obvious and were also critical to achieving successful outcomes. So what should we take from this study? Well, the authors recommend that both trainees and experienced clinicians utilize high-fidelity simulation to train for responding to emergencies, and that providers should utilize cognitive aids like checklists uh, to enhance their performance in simulation, as well as in real-life emergencies. This article and other research shows that baseline training may not adequately prepare anesthesia providers, whether they're CRNAs or physician anesthesiologists, to handle medical emergencies. So there's a bell curve to our performance as healthcare providers. It's uncomfortable to admit that. As anesthesia providers, we like to think that we're at the top of our game all of the time. Our patients expect that. Our surgical colleagues are looking for that from us. But the truth of the matter is that we don't always perform to the level of proficiency, much less expertise, 
in the most demanding moments of our careers. There's times in your group or in your hospital system from the pre-hospital environment through the ED, through the OR, to the ICU and beyond, there's times that that system hums like a well-oiled machine. You know, things click. People know what to do and they do it well. Patients are the recipients of high-quality, compassionate, and reliable care. Weinger and colleagues postulated in the article I just described that perhaps given real situations where the stakes were actually much higher than in simulation and where providers work in team environments where there's other anesthesia providers, other you know surgeons and physicians around and, and CRNAs, that the outcomes may actually, in fact, be better than the, what they found in this simulated study. But there are times where the holes in the Swiss cheese line up and harm unfortunately finds the patient, predictably lashing out to cause suffering that could have been avoidable. You know, maybe this is at 3 a.m. on a Saturday morning in July, like I mentioned earlier, and the team consists of new nurses and residents, attending physicians and anesthesia providers. Perhaps there's a blood shortage or a problem in CSD with getting the instruments processed or a new protocol with pharmacy that hasn't been communicated well enough to get the orders processed and the medications to the patient on time. Maybe the surgeon goes off on one of the nurses about getting the patient in the OR on time, and then the nurse is afraid to speak up when a safety issue arises. Maybe the junior resident falls asleep with their hands in the patient during surgery, which has happened. This has happened to patients over and over, and it will likely keep happening all across the United States. Perhaps someone thought the type and screen got ordered and sent in pre-op, but then it wasn't, and now we need blood. But when you send the type and screen intra-op, you find out that the patient has an antibody that means compatible blood is three hours away in a different city. Maybe you're doing a day of thyroidectomies and parathyroidectomies, but your next case is getting bumped for an emergency neck re-exploration on a patient who's post-op day six from a thyroidectomy with the same surgeon you're working with today. The patient's in the ED with strider, marginal O2 saturations, difficulty breathing, angioedema, and now you need to plan for an emergent awake fiber optic intubation. Oh, and your patient doesn't speak English. Yeah, so these are all real cases that I've described. Some are from my own experience, some are from the literature, some are from people I've talked to. I'm sure you've got your own list of moments when the shit hits the fan and things break down or the degree of complexity and challenge suddenly gets ratcheted up when you and your team were least expecting it. So I want to talk to you about what to do in those moments, how we can influence both our individual and our team or our system's response to emergencies. I want to explore this with you over the coming podcast. Leadership in emergencies encompasses the art and science of resuscitation. There's a science behind high-functioning surgical, anesthesia, emergency medicine, and critical care teams. But there's also an art to what we do. There's systems thinking and ergonomics, how we plan our protocols and lay out our processes and physical spaces to facilitate optimal performance. But there's also an art to our performance. There's the human factor, the element of human performance and capacity for better performance. The psychology of performing in stressful situations as an individual and as a team of individuals is equally, if not more important than the system design which shapes the environment those individuals do their jobs in. You can have a perfectly designed system or protocol or checklist, 
But if the humans working in that system have breakdowns in their communication and decision-making, the outcomes will still be suboptimal. I want you to think of a Formula One pit crew team. These teams are among the best, most highly functioning teams, which perform time-sensitive, complex tasks. They don't just stack the tires here and keep the jacks and wheel guns over there. You know, there's a highly refined system and a plan in place. But there's also a human element to the team, the culture of the whole organization, the leadership from the team principal, the psychology and attitude of the driver and each crew member all affect the way that an F1 team performs. To get reliable, high-quality outcomes, both the system and the team have to be functional. They prepare for and practice managing routine things like swapping out tires during a race, as well as contingencies. The first time they swap out a front wing on an F1 race car is not just after it got smashed in the middle of a race. So leadership in emergencies is about leadership outside of emergencies. It's about the art and the science of resuscitation. In the coming weeks and months, we're going to explore this a little bit more. We're going to talk about cognitive biases, checklists, what leadership is, and why followership is so powerful in emergencies. We're going to look at the concept of flow, stress inoculation training, psychological performance, and cognitive resilience. I hope that you join me for these podcasts. And by that, I don't just mean subscribe to the podcast. Shoot me a line with your questions, your comments, your own tips and insights, and and better yet, Post your thoughts in a public space, like the website, the Facebook page for the podcast, the Instagram feed, or Twitter. We're on all those platforms with Anesthesia Guidebook. Well, I absolutely love your emails, if you have something you think would be insightful for others, getting that question or comment out there for others to see only enhances the value of the podcast and the conversation overall. So I know that having one spot for comments would probably be really cool. It'd be more efficient. It'd be more effective. But the little ragtag community that follows this podcast is spread out, right? We're on all these different platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We surf the web. We're on email. Uh, Sometimes, you know, an Instagram post takes off for the show or Facebook post gets shared a ton or the website lights up with comments or I get a bunch of emails after a particular podcast. I don't really care where you join the conversation, but if you have something to say, definitely get to typing. And if you've got something that can be helpful for other people, be sure to share that on a public forum. I definitely want to hear from you. And so do the other people who listen to this podcast. Lastly, I want to leave you with this quote that I bring up over and over when teaching at anesthesia conferences. It's from Anders Ericsson, who is one of the foremost thinkers and researchers on human performance and expertise. His work is where Malcolm Gladwell got the research for the 10,000 hour rule that he popularized, where it's been described that it takes about 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to achieve expertise in a particular domain. Erickson says, quote, most professionals reach a stable average level of performance within a relatively short time frame and maintain this mediocre status for the rest of their careers, end quote. What this means to me is that we have more work to do. We're on a journey together and through Anesthesia Guidebook, we're going to push back against maintaining that mediocre status. We're going to keep exploring, keep going. We're going to keep refining our work and working together to master our craft as anesthesia providers. So stay tuned. 
because we're just getting started. 